listen carefully. Hello, my name is Joseph Friedman with the CRX podcast, which is a podcast that's directly related to articles in the CRX magazine that comes out quarterly. This is all under the Pharmacy Podcast Network, where I used to have a podcast called The Medical Podcast with Todd Yuri, but I'm thrilled to be a part of that. And in addition, uh, I'm a pharmacist with a master's in business, and uh, I owned and operated a medical cannabis dispensary that uh, was very unique in Illinois, being the only one that was pharmacy-centric, and very proud of that and had a lot of fun with that. It's been kind of surreal at the same time. What I'm trying to do is get the good word out about the benefits of medical cannabis that's fair and balanced uh, for all of you folks. You can find the CRX podcast on crxmag.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Enjoy listening. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Let's Pharmanize, a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Shane Gerritsen. I'm Cal Vandergrift. And I'm Kelly Kerr. And today, we are going to be talking about human physiology in outer space. All that and more on Let's Pharmanize. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. when you burp. Burping is the physiological release or venting of surplus gastric air. It's reflexive. Receptors in the gastric wall detect an increase in gastric volume, which sends a cascade of signals to the lower esophageal sphincter, allowing the passage of air through the esophagus, which then passes through the upper esophageal sphincter, usually making a sound. Air is able to pass through the esophagus because it's lighter than the other contents. Gravity keeps any food or Dr. Pepper down, and you typically don't need to worry about seeing that again. What do you think happens when you burp in space? You vomit. Throw it all up. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's one of life's great questions. There's no gravity to hold the food or liquid down. And within the stomach itself, there's no organization by density. So it's all just sort of floating around and commingling within the GI. God, I never thought about that. That's gross. It is kind of gross. Astronauts very quickly realized that risks inherent with sending their stomach content spiraling through the International Space Station. And before I explain how they came to deal with this problem, let's backtrack. Or maybe chronologically fast forward to discuss why we're really here. We've all seen the news recently. A new space race has reached its apogee. Two privately owned and funded corporations have successfully put humans in suborbital flight, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin. In what seemed to be the culmination of a new space race, both groundbreaking flights launched within a fortnight of each other. While these flights were not quite space flights, but rather suborbital adventures and exceedingly brief, each flight was around 10 minutes in total. However, the passengers did get to experience, if only for a moment, the thrill of zero gravity. The Virgin Galactic flight was about 90 minutes, and that includes assisted takeoff with a little whirlabird descent. I don't know if you guys have seen, like, the flight pattern. It, like, literally, like, spun down, like, one of those seeds that, like, the helicopter seeds. You know what I'm talking about? You mean, like, those little monkeys that have parachutes? Those two. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of, like, it whirlybirded down. It was weird. Huh. But... <clears throat> 
So both flights just barely reached the edge of space known as the Kármán line, which rests 100 kilometers above the Earth's mean sea level. For reference, Mount Everest is about 9 kilometers high. Commercial planes cruise at about 10 kilometers. The International Space Station orbits the Earth at around 400 kilometers above sea level. The feeling of weightlessness has been described as freeing, magical, unlike anything on Earth, literally, and it's something science fiction nerds like myself have fantasized about for generations. Here's some first-hand accounts of Dr. George M. Pantalos, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, professor of cardiovascular and thoracic surgery and professor of bioengineering, who has flown over 40 research flights on NASA's Vomit Comet, who has done some incredible research on physiology in space, particularly CPR, organ perfusion, and surgery for exploration space missions. Really, really cool, brilliant guy. He says, in weightlessness, you are effortlessly floating, because all of the acceleration forces on you add to zero. The most comparable feeling is floating in water, without the sensation of water on your skin. Zero gravity is the realization of a dream. Pantalos has dedicated his life to studying human physiology in space, and he's been integral to the understanding of some fundamentally really complex stuff that goes on with the cardiovasculature and zero gravity. We won't be getting too deep into the specifics and really complex stuff, but let's talk about what happens to the human body in space. Obviously, I don't mean the vacuum of space. Exposure to the vacuum of space for more than a few minutes is lethal. Historically, only three humans have been exposed to the vacuum of space, three cosmonauts on the Soyuz 11, when a pressure valve ruptured prior to the re-entry into orbit, all three cosmonauts died of depressurization. This was in 1971. The autopsies remain classified, but scientists and historians obviously speculate and they have a pretty good idea as to what actually happened. We won't be discussing what happens to the human body in the vacuum. It's kind of grisly and you can just Google that if you really want to ruin your day. The recent space tourists only spend a few minutes in space. But astronauts and cosmonauts today still conduct research on the International Space Station, easily spending six months at a time floating 400 kilometers above the Earth. They're not actually floating, I don't know if you know this, but that thing is moving really fast. It circles the Earth, I believe, about 16 times per day. It's yeah, they're just slowly falling. Yeah. Over, yeah. I didn't re I don't have the record like the um, the actual number for its speed, but it's really fast. Didn't they used to have like that rocket that would go up into space or like not space, but like go really high up and then go down and then for like 30 seconds people That's that the vomit comet. Is that the vomit comet? Yeah, that's what Pantalos was doing research on. Uh, I forget the actual name of it, but it's nicknamed the vomit comet and that's actually also how they filmed the weightlessness in Apollo 13, the Tom Hanks movie. Really? Uh, this is Houston. Uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. Yeah, they, they reused it. I think they had to do like 600 flights. Jesus. Uh, or 600 dips because it flies in a, para right. a parabola. Right. And that's how it achieves that. Does it happen on the parabola or on the way down? On the downwards. On the the upwards, down. they actually get uh, 1.8 Gs. Because okay. they're, you know, they're accelerating upwards. Yeah. And when they come back down, they're falling. Doesn't it take like four Gs to knock someone out or something like that? Uh, probably something like that, yeah. Know. Maybe I'm dead wrong about that. I, I don't know. know. I mean, maybe. Yeah. That doesn't sound too inaccurate. Did you say they filmed a movie on that thing? Yeah, Apollo 13. How much money did that cost? Oh, um, <laughs> ask Robert Zemeckis. That's so expensive. Zemeckis. What about the, like, the Sandra Bullock, George Clooney movie where they were floating? Oh, yeah. oh that was just 100% CGI and really oh, yeah. unrealistic. Yeah. That movie does not like follow it doesn't have it like a single modicum of even physics, like, like accuracy. where the guy's face and imploded into a skull like that's not real when you're Well that would like 
that could potentially happen, but mostly like the whole like plot driving thing of like George Clooney having to sacrifice himself. Oh yeah, floating off. And that was totally like unrealistic. There was no like outward force pulling him away. He would have easily just been able to like climb back. to. You can't like space station hop around though. That was kind of like she was doing. They they have had untethered spacewalks. They're really dangerous. But she like hopped space station to space station. I haven't seen that movie in a while. I've never seen that movie. Went to the Chinese one, went to the Russian one. Yeah. Stuff like that. The trailer for that gave me anxiety. I could not. That was I was anxious when watching. It's, it's, it's an intense movie. Anyway, so let me keep going. So, <clears throat> the theorized manned flight to Mars would take about seven months. The journey's close to five hundred million miles. The world record for most cumulative time in space is held by I'm going to butcher this name Gennady Padalka, a Russian cosmonaut. Eight hundred and seventy-eight days in space. That's cumulative. Oh, okay. It's cumulative, not yeah, consecutive? not consecutive. Uh, the longest consecutive time in space is a record held by another Russian cosmonaut, 437 days. What? Valery Polyakov. This was in 1994. What about the... Who's the guy that Mark something is his name? Scott Kelly. Yeah, and his, his brother Mark. Mark. Yeah. yeah. Is Scott the one that stayed Scott in Scott was the one in space. Okay. So that's, that's who we're going to talk about next. Okay. So... Unfortunately, I could not find a lot of information online about Polyakov's experience in space. There wasn't really a lot to go off of, when I, so I'm, I'm not going to mention it. What we've learned the most from is actually the experience of Scott Kelly, who has spent a total of 520 days in space, with the longest single stint being 340 days on board the ISS, completed in March of 2016. Can you guess, not you, Cal, can you guess, Kelly, why NASA might have been interested in Scott Kelly? Because he was in space for a long time. He was in space for a long time. And it probably, you know, uh, had some strange effects on his body. Right. He was special because he had a twin brother. Ah, okay, okay. He had a twin brother who was also an astronaut. They didn't fly together. His twin brother, Mark Kelly, stayed on Earth during the duration, and they were both monitored very closely, and they performed experiments on them. And it was they came up with some, like, really, really interesting results. Obviously not applicable to the general population in terms of, like, you know, physiology and stuff, because it's just two people. But still really interesting stuff. Anyway, so NASA prepared continuous detailed experience for the astronauts while Scott was on the ISS in order to monitor effects on the eyes, immune system, digestion, muscles, cardiovascular system, bones, and even the mind, and how being so far away from home for so long can affect someone mentally. One of the first things that happens in the body when entering a microgravity environment is fluid redistribution. The body no longer has gravity pulling fluid down to the feet, Yet those vessels that usually remain constricted haven't adapted yet, so fluid tends to get pushed up uh, by the body's own compensatory mechanisms into the upper body, into the upper torso. This tends to lessen over time, but never fully dissipates. If you watch videos of astronauts in space, you can actually sort of notice they tend to have slightly puffy faces from the fluid shift. And the guy, the Canadian guy that does all the videos, I always notice he has like this vein that's like right above his eye and it's always so puffy when he's in space versus like, yeah. I haven't noticed that. I'll have to look at that. Yeah. But yeah, it's because of the the fluid. It looks like they've been like hanging upside down for a while because of the fluid distribution. They basically have been just upside down as relative. Kind of. Yeah. It's, It's really cool seeing like zero gravity videos and stuff. Like I said, this does tend to diminish slightly over time, but not for a great reason. What do you think the body does if it has too much fluid? It's got to excrete it somehow? Yeah, yeah. you pee it out. That's what I thought, too. It's a little bit different, though, actually. Astronauts, within a week of being in space, they lose about 22% of their blood volume. But it doesn't result in excessive urinating, which is what I thought would happen as well. 
It's been investigated, and perhaps someone's found an answer, but in the papers I read dated from the mid-2000s, it has yet to be elucidated. It's thought to be associated with the combined decreased fluid intake, while the fluid output remains unchanged. So they're peeing about the same amount, but they're drinking less. Also, there's lots of other factors involved as well, as we will continue to establish. I was going to say, I wonder if it's just it's an issue with intracellular, you know, uh, sodium, potassium moving in and out of the cell. Maybe just... I didn't see anything about sodium or potassium, but there is there are definitely renal effects, and I think right. I'm going to talk about that actually in the next episode because okay. it's going to come up in drug metabolism. Gotcha. And like. It's so it's so multifaceted. There's so much going on. But right. there's also a loss of erythrocytes, and red blood cell mass actually decreases as well by approximately 10%. Your red blood cells actually get smaller. Immune cells are generally less plentiful and less active in space, and it's difficult to determine whether this is primarily caused by the microgravity itself or combined with space radiation. Gamma radiation can definitely have a major impact on your cell membranes and has been observed causing disruptions to cell shapes. There's lots of oxidative stress going on in space, which can have many downstream effects on your blood volume. If you have reduced blood volume, it's similarly problematic to having too much blood volume. Your heart works best in a range of blood volume. If volume gets too low, your heart can't fill properly, it may beat too fast. And in space, it tends to atrophy with the combination of low blood volume and no gravitational resistance. Here's another way that zero gravity messes with your heart. Do you know where the body's baroreceptors are? There's a lot on the heart. There's two in the body. Aortic valve. A in the aortic arch. Okay. And the other one is in the carotid sinus. So mm. right in the in the throat. What do you think happens if all the fluid in your body that was chilling right where gravity wants it to suddenly floats out to the extremities? Baroreceptors gonna freak out. Right, exactly. They totally freak out. They compensate in like really unpredictable ways and the pressure increases. And it's theorized that some of the alterations to cardiac function and blood volume are compensatory mechanisms. The cardiovascular system is really good at balancing itself. A handful of studies have been performed on astronauts measuring RR interval, which is interval, which is essentially heart rate. The elapsed time between the two QRS waves uh, measured through EKG. And the pressure in the carotid sinus, in many cases, caused using these really uncomfortable-looking collars wrapped around the neck. It looked like a like a dog collar, like the cone of shame. But mm-hmm. like it was, it looked really uncomfortable. Like Doug. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I wonder if they have to. Well, you might know this, but I want. It makes me wonder if they prescribe hypertension drugs. Just you know, where they have question. to have. I them don't know. Actually, space. I didn't see anything about hypertension being like a default mechanism. Well, it seems like if, if liquids just floating around freely, the vessels would constrict more, right? That would be the baroreceptor response. Yeah. I don't think it would be. It definitely hasn't been studied. There's right. not enough study into that. And I think this is why we need a pharmacist in space. I'm we just definitely saying. need a pharmacist in space. Or NASA, if you're listening. Yeah, Shane or I, I actually wrote in here. NASA, call me. But then I cut it. But oh. that works too. NASA, call us. Yeah, both. call us. I, we both want to go. The results uh, from the collar experience or experiment were not really conclusive. We're working with a really small number of subjects and so many variables at play, but typically most of the studies showed small increases in heart rate and blood pressure. In addition to those findings, researchers also noticed increased systemic vascular resistance, so veins sort of hardening and closing throughout the body, atherosclerosis. Not Probably not to that extent, but reduced cardiac output and increased levels of vasopressin, which retains water. There's so that, no, hold, sorry, that's interesting. No, so decreased cardiac output based on the output, increased yeah. SVR, I'm guessing. That yeah, probably from the decrease, increased SVR, yeah. Okay. 
There's yeah. a lot going on. That's a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, because then space is doing all this weird stuff, and the body, particularly the, the cardiovascular system, has like all kinds of compensatory mechanisms oh, yeah. to like move the cardiac output in, in any direction that it needs to, usually. But So it's just all out of whack. There's another phenomenon related to spaceflight that occurs after the astronaut has returned to Earth. We've all become acquainted with orthostatic hypotension as a side effect of various blood pressure medications, particularly those that act on alpha, will allow me to introduce you to its cousin, orthostatic intolerance. Almost all astronauts when returning to Earth, even after a short week-long journey, have had difficulty standing and remaining standing for more than a few minutes after landing without becoming very dizzy to the point of almost losing consciousness. We know that orthostatic hypotension is, is the body's inability to compensate for shifts in the distribution of blood in the body. Well, that's when you stand up and you get really dizzy because all the blood leaves your brain and pools in the legs and you so sometimes fall down. I fell down once. I was in high school and I was like laying on the couch and my mom was like, get up and take out the trash. So I got up and I was able to walk all the way to the kitchen and then I just blacked out and I right. woke up on the floor in like a small pool of blood because mm. I had hit my nose so hard on the door. Jeez. Did Janine find you? Yeah. Okay. She like saw me and she, she said she thought I was joking because, <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> just me. And I had like Jeez. this big gash on the front of my nose. I'll I had a similar experience. Yeah. yeah. I was stretching once like doing school stuff and yeah. this freaked me out because I was like, oh my God, because I, when I was a little baby i had history of seizures and then when i was i was stretching i just blacked out and i woke up and i was like convulsing like my roommate was like freaking out like jeez what are you doing are you okay i was like no that was an experience it la he said it lasted like two minutes i oh, was wow. like freaking out that's nuts i just get dizzy when i stand up sometimes <laughs> so <laughs> that too that's orthostatic hypotension wow and there's certain medications that particularly in older people make the body even more susceptible to yeah, that yeah people with chronic hypotension have it really bad they yeah. have, they is have hypo hypo means less yes yeah. okay. hypotension is, is low blood pressure oh well that would yeah okay my blood pressure is like always low. They mm -hmm. say that at the doctor every time. Is your blood pressure normally low? Yes, it is. Orthostatic means specifically like from a sitting Stasis to standing to position. Yeah. Okay, okay. But it could worsen. If you ever wind up in the hospital though and they're freaking out about your low blood pressure, if you're still coherent, you probably should tell them though. Just saying. Forewarning. Okay. Because they might freak out about that. Yeah. Low blood pressure is generally not dangerous unless you're like unless you're really going low it depends on how low you go hypertension yeah. is uh is not is not that way it, it is dangerous and you usually don't feel it interesting yeah so that was unless you have a hypertension headache which are frustrating yeah even after just a few days in space the body forgets how to react to standing up with gravity shifting all the blood to the legs this fades luckily pretty quickly after returning to earth astronauts are able to stand and walk comfortably generally within an hour after particularly long journeys, astronauts have been known to feel a little wobbly for up to 24 hours, but this is likely more balance related. So that's the cardiovascular effect, by and large the most complicated to me. So before we move on to the next few, was there anything particularly of interest or any lingering questions you may have had? It seems like it would be you would have a lot higher risk of having a cardiac failure or a myocardial infarction when you're in space. If your baroreceptors are consistently you yeah. know, pressing down, definitely, you'd think that that would be I think dangerous. that's probably one of the reasons why all the astronauts are subject to such vigorous tests before they're able to go into space, because they have to be at the, you know, at the, their peak physical 
performance, they have to be really, really fit. I also wonder if they're going to have issues with like nasal congestion because, you know, the pooling mm-hmm. up there. And a lot of people describe the smell of space being like, you know, a burn. Yeah, they do have decongestants in on the ISS. Hopefully it's not so, with phenylephrine, though, because if they already have hypertension useless. issues, that's not good. Anyway, yeah. So, okay. Wait, I have a question. Yeah. So, I know you started off talking about burping in space, and I think the question that's on everyone's mind is about farts. So what happens in oh, space no. if you have to fart? Farting in space is actually very easy. It is. Yeah, it's it's not particularly difficult. I they had a feeling they fart they more needed in to. space. They actually do report report farting more in space. But the the anal sphincter is really good about sequestering liquids and solids and gas and only allowing certain substances to pass through, much better than the esophageal sphincter. There must be a reason they're wearing those baggy clothes, though. It My can't next just be. question is, what if you have diarrhea? Oh, man. Well, now they have vacuum <laughs> toilets. Okay, okay. They have, they have vacuum toilets that, that you used to have to, um, back in like the, the 80s and 90s, they used to like strip totally naked because if they were to get fecal matter on their clothes, there'd be no way to clean it off. So they would actually get completely naked, go to like a corner of the ship, and then they would just have a bowel movement in a bag. And then they would like just seal it. And I I think, I don't know if they had the ability to freeze dry it then, they do now. But there was was frequently the issue of um, floating fecal matter in in spaceships and on the ISS. It's a really good question. Thank you. Yeah. Also, farting in space is really unpleasant because the smell just kind of lingers because <laughs> there's not the best circulation. The vacuum, though, that they have now actually starts the outflow of like gas, of, of air, when they open the lid. So it immediately starts like a circulation. So it helps with the smell a little bit. Well, we definitely do not want to take our cat to space then. You know, our cat's really stinky. Yeah, <laughs> he has tummy problems. So anyway, while we're still on the topic of fluid, another very sensitive organ, or rather a pair of organs, is really adversely affected by an increase in pressure. You know what organs I'm talking about? Your kidneys. I, I, well, That's I was my guess. I was assuming you were going to talk about the lungs, but the kidneys. Eyeballs. 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 Yeah, true. So, but first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by CVS Pharmacy. Lower your expectations. Vision, vision problems in space are such an issue that there's actually a name for it. Come back, come back. Space-associated neuroocular syndrome, or SANS. The fluid shift towards the head and torso can cause fluid to build up in the eyes, which leads to optic disc edema. The optic disc is where the nerves leave the eye and travel to the brain. There's choroidal thickening and cotton wool spots, which are tiny white spots on the retina that are signs of vascular inefficiency, so not proper blood flow getting to the the actual eye itself. You typically see these in patients with diabetes or actually cytomegalovirus. They're rarely symptomatic in themselves, but they're good signs that something not good is going on. There's not really a good way to prevent this right now because a lot of the drugs that treat intraocular pressure, like latanoprost for glaucoma, rely on increase of outflow of aqueous humor and through prostaglandin activity. And something like bromonidine increases outflow while also decreasing production of aqueous humor. These are tiny physiological processes that are competing with the entire rest of the body, pushing fluid up to the head. It would be like trying to stop a river with your bare hands. Sure, it'll do something, but ultimately the benefit, I think, would be negligible. 
NASA and other interested parties are looking into negative pressure suits for long journeys, like the journey to Mars. These would, I, my understanding is, create small controlled vacuums on the legs or lower torso to allow normal circulation as best as possible. Even if it was like a cure-all and they had to like use latanoprost eye drops in space, they couldn't even give it, right? Right. It'd yeah. be so difficult to use an eye drop in oh space. Oh my God. Or would it be easier? Because they would just like float in air, and, and I guess you like could just like walk catch up it. To it. Yeah, yeah. With your eye. That'd be really challenging. What if you like, you know, squeeze it too hard, and you just send like a jet of latanoprost across the the station? Do you think contacts have enough suction on your eye to not just float off? Can you wear contacts? That's in a space? really good question. Well, I don't know. I know when I put my contacts on, you know, they make that squelchy like. Right, I hate sound. it. Yeah, it's nasty. They? Yeah, they do. That's how you know that they're on. Yeah. I never knew that. That's gross. Yeah, you should listen next time I put my contacts in. If you blink a lot, they just keep doing it until they stop, and then you know they're on. Yeah. Ew, that's really gross. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so um, a glaucoma, while sounding similar in theory to SANS, is usually characterized by structural abnormalities of the eye, causing a buildup of pressure, which damages the optic nerves over time. In SANS, it's the fluid shift that causes the buildup, and because of the shift, there's nowhere for the fluid to go, even if you were to treat it like glaucoma. Not to mention the problem of applying eye drops in space, like we've just mentioned. Scott Kelly, who I mentioned earlier, described vision issues while on all three of his flights, including bad middle vision for a while, and after returning from his 340-day journey, it took his vision about three months to return to normal. At least it did return to normal. At least it did, yeah. Imagine, though, if uh, he's just one person. Imagine if he had been, you know, older or he'd been in space longer right. or something. I mean, a lot of factors at play. Other astronauts have sustained vision damage that has never recovered. Wow. Jeez. It's, that's, that's nuts to me. So that's the eyes. Any thoughts before we move on? No more questions about bodily functions? No, sorry. I've been holding that one in for a while, that's though. A, that's a really good question. <laughs> Get yeah. it? I've been holding that one in for a while. Okay, okay. <laughs> Wait, I don't get it. Can you explain it? Fart. I, I got it. Okay. <laughs> That's good, thanks. So up next, muscles and bones. I'll kind of group them together because the general cause of the changes is really largely the same. On Earth, the primary stressor on your muscles and bones is gravity. When you're in space, the same acceleration force that your muscles and bones have gotten used to for your whole life is suddenly no longer there. However, scientists think there's other factors at play here as well. Even with regular two-hour daily periods of pretty intense, vigorous exercise on board the ISS, astronauts still face muscle wasting, although the exercise seems to slow it down. A study of avian muscles, that means bird, determined that muscles in space didn't show changes in cell metabolism or protein degradation, but there was a significant decrease in protein synthesis. 74% by the ninth day of the 10-day study, which Jeez. is pretty dramatic. The synthesis rates normalized after returning to Earth. So this means that the cell turnover stays the same, but the muscles aren't making new cells to replace the recycled ones. Similarly, astronauts lose 1 to 2% of their bone density every month. That sounds slow, like it wouldn't be a problem, but the flight to Mars is 7 months. So spaceflight osteopenia could result in a loss of potentially up to 14% of your bone density. According to a report from the Surgeon General, that's almost a threefold increase in fracture risk. However, this is the one thing that stood out to me as something that could be potentially prevented by medication we have on Earth. And that is, do you know where I'm headed with this? Fosamax? Yes, bisphosphonates. Ibandronate and alendronate, otherwise known as Boniva and Fosamax, or Boniva, I guess, if you're one of those people. 
Bisphosphonates actually inhibit the activity of osteoclasts. So in bone resorption, bone cells replace themselves like normal cells. There's osteoblasts and there's osteoclasts. Osteoclasts break down the bone cells. Osteoblasts build new bone cells to replace the broken down ones. Sounds like a blast. <laughs> Sounds good. So this drug inhibits the ones that are breaking down the cells. So they're less active. What if people took steroids in space? I mean, you're talking about atrophying and like muscles not being able to produce. New. Over time, though, if you had to do it, like if you were on a Mars trip, though, that would actually worsen bone degradation. So Ooh. I don't think that would. That be would beneficial. be the case with glucocorticoids, but I don't know about. Um, I guess mineralocorticoids. Yeah. yeah would. Hmm. Male astronauts do have problems with low testosterone in space. So, I would worry more, uh, less about my bones, I guess, and more about the cartilaginous part of it, because, like. Scott Kelly grew a couple inches when he came back down to Earth, but that wasn't a good that thing. That was more with, like, the decompression of his spinal cord. And over, yeah, over yeah. time, it, it, like, two hours or something, he shrunk back down. But, like, over time. Was it two hours? I, I, or it, something like that, yeah. It, like, it returned pretty immediate. That once. sounds like it would hurt. Right? It seems painful. But the, I know I was watching a video once, and he was describing a lot of knee and joint pain because of the air in between, you know, your, your bone and your cartilage. Yeah. It's just expanding, and it's just... It just seems like a painful experience. However, on Mars, though, it's like, isn't Mars like 65% of gravity? Mars is about 40%. 40%, yeah. something like that? Okay. I think so, their gravity acceleration is 3.4 meters per second per second. It would hurt worse in, on Mars. Or yeah. it would hurt worse if you ever came back to Earth, I guess. But yeah. I guess if you got used to living on Mars. Well, I guess if they lived in a pressurized Earth-like cabin, it wouldn't be too bad. It'd still be... No, it'd still be the same gravity, though. It'd still be Mars gravity. Even in, I guess, yeah. Yeah, even if it's pressurized. Yeah, true that. Pressure's not going to change gravity, Calvin. The Martian did not do that right, I'm just saying. No, they that. handled it pretty well, actually. You think? Yeah. Inside the, the, the house thing that we they We just built? watched the Martian. Really? Like, literally, like, five days ago. Yeah. Well, why wasn't he just, like, hopping around the... You wouldn't hop. I mean, you're, Could, I mean. you know, right now you're 200 pounds. There you'd be 90 pounds. Right. Or something. I don't know if that math that is. That probably does. That's pretty solid. Yeah, like 85, oh, oh. 90 pounds. Yeah. yeah. Well, if the moon is like, what is it, a third or is it a The a moon is about a ninth. Like oh, a ninth. Okay. Yeah. So they can hop around. They hop on the moon. Yeah. They do that. They can hop on the moon. Hop on the, the big cheese that, ball. That, yeah, the, the video of them hopping on the moon. Yeah. When you, what you said about Scott Kelly, do you want to know another fun fact about how another quick way to, to lose a, like an inch of height? Eject from an airplane. The compression really? of the seat has, is known to compress spines. Makes sense. And people who eject are like a centimeter shorter. Yikes. Yeah. Sounds painful. Anyway, so yeah, so bisphosphonates actually inhibit the activity of osteoclasts, which, as we know, are part of the body's normal bone recycling process, and cause them to undergo apoptosis, where the cells actually die. This is something that was actually investigated for long space journeys to help mitigate bone density loss in the late 90s. However, there's one interesting thing about bisphosphonates. They have a very special set of instructions on how to take the medications. Do you know what those instructions are? Enlighten me. Okay. When you take a bisphosphonate, which, by the way, they vary on how frequently you have to take them, alendronate and recidronate are weekly, and abandronate is monthly, a patient is supposed to take them with a full glass of water, no other food or drink for an hour. That's fine. Easy enough to do in space. They've got pretty rigid schedules and should be pretty easy to monitor fluid and food intake. They're doing that already anyway. Next, you have to remain upright 
to prevent esophageal irritation. The problem with this is that there is no up in space. When you take a bisphosphonate, you're relying on gravity to keep the contents of the stomach from irritating the esophageal lining. Where's that stomach juice going to go in space? Right Wherever it wants. Yeah. It's just going to do its thing. It's going to float around and it's not going to contain itself in the bottom of the stomach. The way that bisphosphonates cause this irritation is through their binding mechanism. When they bind the hydrophobic lining of the GI tract, the acid-resistant phospholipids in the cell membranes are weakened, which means that the mucosal layer can erode and cause ulcers. This is avoided by sitting upright and drinking a full glass of water. Sort of acts like a buffer. Now that limits current existing bisphosphonates because they're not enteric coated. However, technology exists to manufacture the pills in such a way that they don't release their contents until they reach the lower pH of the small intestine or some other delayed release function. But then you run into the possibility of unknowingly affecting bioavailability in some unforeseen way. The results of this trial were actually not super mind-blowing. There was moderate preservation of bone density and reduced calcium excretion in the urine, but two out of the 10 astronauts in the bisphosphonate arm of the trial experienced the dyspepsia, that is the acid reflux, associated with the drug and had to stop the trial. So the first problem is only 10 astronauts in the trial. Right. That's like useless. That's a useless RCT. 10 astronauts? Yeah. Not really an RCT at all, really. Right. It's just like... It's, a, it's not. It's a, a case series, I guess. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a case series. We would need, like, you know, massive scale RCTs to be able to show any kind of significant data. And that's a really small trial that was still 20% of the astronauts who had the negative side effect and had to stop. In larger populations of astronauts, for instance, on a journey to colonize Mars or establish a Death Star, there's also IV infusions of similar drugs that have a much longer duration of action, but also a higher risk of other adverse events, particularly osteonecrosis, which is not fun. I kind of went down the rabbit hole with this one, but I found it really interesting to entertain. And I actually wrote almost like all of this section. And then later on researching something else, I found that they actually did the alendronate study in space. I thought it was just like my idea. <laughs> Obviously, it's not. Right. Of course, they already tried that. Now it's time to talk about the GI system. That's my favorite part. The GI system has evolved to exclusively function with the assistance of gravity and is perhaps the system most obviously affected by differences in acceleration and velocity. People get nauseous in roller coasters, on boats, in airplanes. Space is certainly no exception. Not only is the balance affected contributing to nausea, but there's delayed gastric emptying resulting in constipation, and this reduced gastric activity also contributes to space motion sickness. There's several medications used in space, scopolamine, promethazine, and dextroamphetamine, Please don't ask me about how dextroamphetamine, that's Adderall, how that's going to help with space nausea, because I don't know. I looked it up. I <laughs> couldn't find anything. I will perhaps look into it further in an additional episode. But Seems like just an excuse to give people Adderall. I mean, it, it, it mostly causes nausea in people, yeah. but I will, I'll look into that further because I was intrigued by that. They use those drugs to offset space motion sickness. Another interesting thing about the scopolamine is that they only use that when they're on an EVA, which is an extra vehicular activity, I think, like when they're on like a spacewalk, because if they throw up in their helmet, they will die. Yeah, they'll wind up aspirating it. Yeah, they could either aspirate on it or it could clog the vents in their helmet or it could obscure their vision and they can't see. No, that makes sense. But why wouldn't they just use a scopolamine patch all the time on the space Because station? of the side effects. They oh. will sometimes use it on their first few days in space, right, but, but rarely. Keep it but up. because of the drowsiness and the sedation and the possibility of other, other like 
right. you know, cognitive side effects, they don't want to risk it because they're doing such high cognitive function demanding stuff, research and stuff in space. Hmm. Okay. Also, constipation, which is part of it. I mean, mostly the other side effects, but uh, all of these drugs ultimately make the constipation worse, further delaying gastric emptying. Without gravity, you're pretty much relying exclusively on peristalsis, which is where the intestines kind of like squeeze food along. That's what they do. I don't like that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, that's normal. It's, I know. It's like it just, it, the honey. way you said it, and I know podcast people can't see, but your hand motions along with that were just... I was just like squeezing. I know, you, have you ever still. like ever needed to get that last little bit of toothpaste out? And oh. You're just like really trying yeah. to pull it up. That's, like, 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 yeah, that's, really good. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. It's like squeezing a tube of toothpaste. So, and that's happening in your intestines pretty much all the time, and that's how stuff moves. So, if you're ever looking at your toothpaste and you see that little small opening where the toothpaste comes out, that's your anal sphincter. Yeah. Just remember that. remember that that as soon as I put it on the brush (laughs) that's about to go in my mouth. Dehydration also further leads to constipation. An eight-day space flight for two astronauts in 1965 resulted in a total of four bowel movements between the two of them. Do the math. Wow. That's eight days, only two bowel movements per astronaut. God knows. That's some people, you know, only go like two, three times a week, but like no the normal way. population. I've went twice a day. <laughs> Same. <laughs> it's a bowel movement, you know, like once or twice a day. I think that's the normal number of, of bowel movements. I think it's a range. I don't know what's normal. Anyway, where was I? <laughs> oh yeah. So I mentioned earlier burping in space. Can you imagine any kind of way that astronauts might handle the situation of needing to belch in space? Just don't do it. Praying and crying. How do you stop yourself from burping? Like, what if you have? Just do it in your mouth. Swallow. Ew, it's still going to throw up in your mouth. Yeah, you just just swallow it back down. Oh, that's yucky. Anyway, so here's how they did it. Astronaut James Newman actually developed a technique that requires some careful timing. But when you feel the urge to belch... You just kick off a wall or surface in the space station, propelling yourself in one direction. Right. Keep stomach contents down and prevents the notorious space burp. The you Newman maneuver. You told me that the other day I and I forgot. Sorry. You could, I guess, in a more convoluted and complex way, you could just carry like a compressed air container and just like, and then like go back down. But then Sorry, you swallow that, the that air and then you're just really going to... I just found a better name for this, by the way, since James Newman discovered it, the Jimmy Shimmy. That's good. That's so, good. NASA, you can you can use that if you want. Just credit me. If they had, like, a compressed air canister, that would make them burp more because they're swallowing air. I guess. They have inhalers in, on the ISS, too, by the well, way. Well, how do those work, then? You just breathe it in. See, I need. I hope we're talking about the lungs at some point. Cause this we is are like, actually – I'm not going to talk about the lungs. Okay. We need to look at this – I'll look it up for part two, I guess, because okay. I need you to... You can present something on part two. This is the most intriguing part to me. The lungs. What happens with the lungs. Like asthma. How does asthma get worse? Don't go to space. Or if you have if you have a, like a pneumonia and you have fluid buildup oh, in gosh. your lungs, how does that work? Do you aspirate on your own fluids? Maybe if, if we do a part two, you can do some physiology of like interesting diseases in space. Yeah. And then I'll talk about drugs. Word. Okay. I like it. Yeah. Because this was a lot more dense than I anticipated. Because we still... We're like... I think we're a little more than halfway. Yeah, we're five of seven pages. Okay. The effects on the immune system are much more varied, and the causes are less certain. There's been reported changes in leukocyte distribution, T-cell function, increased levels of immunoglobulins, which is interesting to me, 
measures of cytokines that were highly variable, some low, some high, which could be amplified by their complicated inhibitory and excitatory relationships with themselves. This erratic behavior of the immune system is probably a result of three main factors. One, zero gravity having unpredictable effects on physiology. Two, gamma radiation. And three, the lack of exposure to normal bacteria and viral flora. I don't know if viruses count as flora, but whatever. Lack of stimuli on the immune system can result in feedback loops that inhibit or even overstimulate other pathways, as explained by the hygiene hypothesis for allergies. Hypersensitivities and dangerous allergic reactions have yet to be noted, but it's something that requires attention. It just reminded me of that show. Have you ever seen The 100? Yeah, you, you've seen I've that seen show? a few episodes. So I think there, if you've ever seen I've, it. I've only heard of it. So it, the, the theory is that there was a nuclear fallout, mm -hmm. and the only people that survived were the people on the International Space Station. Okay. And then they would wind up coming back down to Earth. But I was thinking about it, like, since that they aren't exposed to, like, these virus, if coronavirus, say coronavirus wiped out the entire world, they wouldn't be exposed to it. So they would right. still be, human race would still survive. That's nice. I think there's, like, 12 people on the ISS right now. Gotta do what you gotta do. I don't know. You know, it's it's pretty small. The ISS is about the size they've described it as a six-bedroom house. So, I mean, like, big for a house, small for a space station. And there's the people on the Russian one and... The... Is that the Mir station? Yeah. I don't know if there's anybody actively on the Mir station. I know it's the International Space Station, so I know there's different astronauts yeah. that go up to that and cosmonauts. But there isn't a Rus there's a Russian one and... According to the Sandra Bullock movie, there's a Chinese one, too. I think that's correct. I don't know the name of it, though. Yeah. One of them's the Murr Station. Though. We'd still survive, I guess, the human race. Well, we wouldn't. We'd die. Yeah. But New humans. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's dark. Anyway, so <laughs> the final question we'll attempt to answer today, something that I'm sure has been on everybody's mind since we began this journey into the outer reaches of our galaxy, can you have sexual intercourse in space? <laughs> short answer is, eh, kinda. Both male and female reproductive systems rely on normal gravity-supported blood flow for stimulation and the excretion of endogenous lubricants. When there's a fluid shift and all the blood is somewhere else, it makes it that much more difficult to maintain an erection. Currently, there's no official diagnosis for microgravity-induced sexual dysfunction, as researching this phenomenon has not been on NASA's to-do list. One of the reasons for this is because of another delicate physiological function that relies heavily on gravity and normal distribution of fluids in internal organs, pregnancy. When a sperm fertilizes an egg, it's not self-propelled into the uterus. It relies on gravity to sort of float down the fallopian tube and implant itself in the uterus. If the egg doesn't make it to the uterus, it's called ectopic or extrauterine pregnancy. I think if it is stuck in the fallopian tube itself, it's called the tubal pregnancy. Which one's the one that cats have? Is that... Because cats don't. They don't go into the uterus. They, like, line the kittens. I think in the fallopian tubes. I guess it's a tubal pregnancy. I have no idea. Yeah. Because they have, like, eight kittens, but each egg, like, st stacks themselves in the fallopian tube or something. Why do you know that? I don't know why I know that. <laughs> you watch an animal planet in your Maybe or some time. animal planet, yeah, Discovery Channel thing that I just so happen I mean, to. I've seen a just... handful of horse births on Animal Planet. Ew. I've seen more than I cared to count. I feel like just David Attenborough was, yeah. you know, was just telling me about it. You know, the cat develops in, in the fallopian tubes. And... You know David Attenborough? Sir He's the guy David that does, yeah. Yeah, I know. Okay, sorry, okay. You just your face was like... 
Okay, no, he's no, got to no. be like, like the cat, eight hundred okay, years okay. old by now. <laughs> Older than time. I hope he listens to our podcast. He doesn't. No but. way. Maybe. No. Anyway, so ectopic or extra uterine pregnancy is life threatening for not only the embryo but also the mother. If the egg defies the odds and implants correctly in the uterine wall, there's still the matter of fetal development. As we've mentioned before on the show, gestation is immensely complicated and delicate, and scientists theorize that without gravity, it would be exceedingly unlikely that the fetus would develop without life-threatening abnormalities to cardiovascular, bone, or nervous system development. Imagine like the, the most delicate formation of like the neural tube development, how it has to form that special shape, like what's going to happen if it's in a zero-gravity environment or if the, the fluid distribution is off. Like even just yeah. like small folate disruptions can cause really severe birth defects and abnormalities. It'd be really, really delicate and dangerous. And not only the organ thing, but bones wouldn't form correctly. Exactly. Either. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, it could be like a weird version of rickets, I guess. You could, and that would be best case scenario if the child even survived. Yeah. Dark. Okay. Those are the main physiological ramifications of being a human in outer space. NASA and other agencies and physicians and scientists all over the world, men and women much smarter than I am, have spent countless hours investigating these phenomena, and there's still so much more to learn. As humanity climbs ever upward and expands into the furthest reaches of the cosmos, we will continue to adapt and evolve as a species, because it's what we do. We've got incredible technology, and it's only getting more amazing year after year. But the physiology of microgravity is multifaceted and immensely complex. I, for one, love the idea of space travel. I love spacefaring sci-fi, books, movies, video games. I love it all. But to me, the scariest thing about space isn't aliens or space battle with the Death Star or William Shatner. It's my own body. Tune in next time to hear about drugs in space. This speech sounded like right out of the mouth of Jean-Luc Picard, and you just you don't even that? know. He's in Star Trek. I know who that is. I'm kidding. Okay. That's um, <laughs> uh, Professor X. Yeah. Pat Sir Patrick Stewart. We've talked about two sirs in this episode. Sir Patrick Stewart. We kind of alluded to Sir Richard Branson, too, the Virgin Galactic guy. Yeah. So there's three. I didn't want to mention any of their names, it's though. Sir Jeffrey Bezos. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music.